If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview. Blue smoke climbing up the mountain, blue smoke winding around the... The one, the only, Dolly Parton. What is the one thing you think your public doesn't know about you? They'd probably be surprised at how really ordinary I am in my day-to-day life. You are evil, that's right, evil to the core. She's still a spitfire who says what's on her mind, unapologetic about who she is and how she looked. Bluntly put, how did you keep the men off of you (laughs) and keep your mind and their mind on business? I knew how men thought. I look like a woman, but I can also think like a man. Singer, songwriter, philanthropist, and actress, the legendary Dolly Parton, tonight on The Big Interview. It's hard to imagine country music without Dolly Parton. She's been singing professionally for over 50 years and first began promoting records as a child. Right now, Miss Dolly, have you got all your singers and everything? Her career took off in 1967 when, at the age of 21, she joined country music legend Porter Wagner as the co-host of his hit television show. Over the years, she's recorded hundreds of songs, 25 of which became number one hits. And she's won seven Grammys, as well as a host of other prestigious awards for her contribution to American music. Now 68 years old, she still performs all over the world, most recently to promote her latest album, Blue smoke. Clickety, 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 clack. Just stay on track and never look back. Choo, 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 woo, woo, woo. Blue smoke is coming through. Dolly's story is a rags to riches American dream. She has always been refreshingly authentic and can still light up a room. How are nice you? you well, well, you hello, too. Well, hello, darling. Well, that's, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> I bet you haven't. <laughs> but I'm happy to see you. How are you doing? You look sensational. Well, do I? Well, Come thank you. I had the privilege of sitting down with her at Dollywood, her theme park in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. You're looking well, too. Well, May well, I compliment you. you? Well, thank you. Seeing you made me so nervous, I dropped my face. I saw all that, but I'm glad. <laughs> see, it means I still got it. <laughs> Do you have it? Come on now. You're looking for a compliment and you're going to get it. Well, I wasn't really. Which raises the question, Dolly, and 
I hope we can have some fun here. Today. Oh, please. You know I know you, and you know me, so we'll say whatever but we want to But as close as I will come to a serious question, how do you do it? Seriously, you look terrific. You still have the waist of a wasp. Uh, <laughs> the waist of a wasp. <laughs> I love that. No, you look terrific. How do you do it? Well, I work hard at it. You gotta, I always say I think of myself as a show horse or a show dog. You gotta keep them groomed, you gotta keep them up. So I always say if I see something sagging, dragging, and bagging, I'm gonna get it nipped, tucked, and sucked. And I always say I'll never graduate from college. And people say, oh, you look so happy. I said, well, that's Botox. But anyway, truth being, I do whatever I need to do to, to look good. But I have a good attitude too, and I love my work. So I don't think you can, do a whole lot outside if it don't come from the inside too. So I try to, you know, just keep myself busy and keep myself useful and just wear that makeup and it gets a little thicker every year. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of work, you have a new album out and this is what, number 40, what, five? Oh, mercy. It's, I've lost count because I've been doing well, this for so long. <laughs> I have as well. And it's called Blue Smoke. Yes. Tell me about Blue Smoke, because I'm interested in knowing the process for writing these songs. Now, you wrote this song. Yes. I wrote, uh, there, there's 12 songs in this uh, Blue Smoke CD, and I wrote nine of them. I did do some other songs, but Blue Smoke, I wrote uh, several years back. I just always loved it, and I'd recorded it uh, some time back, and I kept, it just kept haunting me. I thought, and different people, you know, when I would sing it to friends, they said, why didn't you ever release Blue Smoke? Because it's about a heartbreak train, you know, by the name of Blue Smoke, but it's very singable. It's very, kind of got some bluegrass flavors, bluegrass harmonies, which I love that. But it just seemed to be right, and not only did I include it in the CD, I named the whole album that, but I just thought it was a good title. Blue Smoke kind of remind me of bluegrass and the blue smoke that rise from the Smoky Mountains here. And so it just seemed to be like a perfect title for it. But the song kind of moves along. It's singable, and it's, I think people identify with it. Getting on that train, getting out of here, it's like this relationship is going nowhere. So I'm going to jump on that heartbreak train, you know, blue smoke, and get on out. The album was first released in Australia and New Zealand, where it quickly reached number one. Well, I read, and I want to check with you, is it possible that you have written more than 3,000 songs? Oh, at least. Well, I write all the time, and I've been writing since I was just a little kid. I started playing guitar when I was seven years old, and I've been writing serious songs ever since. But uh, I have published hundreds, hundreds of songs, and written more songs. I've every drawer, every box, every in my basement, in my houses. I got songs stuck everywhere. I pull out a drawer to get some panties. I pull out a drawer to get some drawers. <laughs> I'll find a song in there. So, but that's just what I do. It's it's my therapy. It's my job. It's my joy. And it's like a poet. You know, everything's a song to me. I always, anything that happens, any conversation I have, somebody will say something, I think, ooh, that's a good idea for a song. And do you jot it down right away or put it in a tape recorder? How does that work? Both. I just write all kinds of ways. I, you know, I'll, I'll wake up sometimes from a dream and think, I better get up and write that down or I'll forget it. And I just will either write down a title or sometimes a melody will come to me. I'll put it on tape so I don't forget it. But usually the, the songs, the words and the music usually come at the same time. I'll just be thinking of something or have a good title and I'll just think on that and usually there'll be a kind of melody spinning in my head and before you know it, 
I've got a song. They're not all good. I would say I've probably written at least 3,000 songs. I've probably got three good ones out of that. You once told me some time ago that you frequently are up very early in the morning, which I think you call it the wee hours of wisdom. Wee hour wisdom is what I always say. But I do. I love, I wake up early. I'm, I'm one of those people that I don't require a lot of sleep. My dad was like that too. And the older I get, the less sleep I seem to need. I'm afraid I'm going to miss something, I think. But I'm just wired that way. I do nap off and on, you know, those little power naps that Bob Hope and a lot of those people talk about doing. But I just really love the mornings when everything else seems to be kind of quiet and the energies are kind of calm. And I'm up and I just seem to kind of just grab things out of the air, just like they're things out there for me. And I just get up and do some of my best work before most people get up. There was a lot of those old sayings like early to bed, early to, right. to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I think there's so much truth in, in that. I think it just seems to be like the time to, that I absorb things more than I do when everything's crazy and the day is wore you out. Train songs have been so important to country music. It has. Of course, Hank Williams was one that he loved trains and then that I'm so lonesome I could cry tell that hear that lonesome whistle blow you know and then so many people do uh, and I've written several train songs myself and I know uh, I know that uh, Merle Haggard loves trains in his home I remember went, went to see him one time he's got his whole house he's got these trains that run run through this just spectacular but he's written songs as well but you're right there's just something about I think that we want to go I think it's the gypsy in us, like we just want to get on out of here. If something ain't right, you want to hop a train or a plane and get on out of it. But the train, since most of us country folks are afraid to fly, we'd rather take the train than get on a plane. Among my earliest memories are listening to the Grand Ole Opry with my maternal grandmother deep down in Bloomington, Texas, and hearing uh, Roy Acuff, of course, sing. You know what I'm going to say, Wabash County. Yes, I love that song. I've recorded that before. I've, I've sung that before in different albums. I think I recorded it. If not, I should get you a copy of it. some tapes. I know that I have sung that many times in the past. Well, you've recorded so many songs. You've written so many songs of your own. But I just wonder whether that tied back to your very early girlhood of, of hearing the Wabash Cannonball, which, in my recollection, I could be wrong, had to be one of the most popular songs in the country for it was and it still is that's yeah. one of those songs that people still record every bluegrass group does the wabash cannonball on shows when they do uh, i saw the light those kind of right. things and if you <laughs> if you're inclined to be country or bluegrass at all you've got to do the wabash and of course of course, Roy Acuff is from East Tennessee here, too. So he was like a kindred soul, and I loved him dearly. He was like a great old uncle to me. And we used to sing that together, and he used to get a kick out of it when I was working with the Porter Wagoner show, and we were all at the Grand Ole Opry. We'd get in his dressing room and sing that song along with all sorts of others, but that's always been a favorite of mine. Well, it's been so long ago, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you remember even the first chorus of it? Well, uh, do you? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, from the great Atlantic, the great Atlantic Ocean, Ocean to the wide to Pacific, Pacific shore. shore. From, from the, the you know, flower mountain to the south bells by the boar. She's long and she's handsome. She's known what? quite well by all. She's the combination called the Wabash Cannonball. Is it combination? Is that <laughs> yes, the that's, word? You got it. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, of course I would know it if I had time to think about it because I was singing. I was saying, well, but, but that's a great one. That melody is, is good, too. It's so singable. 
Listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Dolly Parton. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Dolly Parton. One of the most unique attractions at Dollywood is the Chasing Rainbows Museum. The museum houses what Dolly Parton calls pieces of her past, dresses, costumes, and shoes she's worn on stage and in her films. This is from the Rhinestone movie with Sylvester Stallone. It was not a big hit in the public, but it was a big hit with me because <laughs> I loved working with him and he was fun. Yeah. Now, what about Steel Magnolia? Coming oh, here, it's great. obvious that the Dolly brand is much more than just music. It is a multi-million dollar industry, employing thousands of people. And Parton isn't slowing down. Her Dollywood empire, which drew nearly four million visitors last year, is expanding. We have a $300 million program where we're actually going to be expanding different parts of Dollywood. We're building a new resort mm -hmm. that's going to actually be opening next year, next summer. So we're very excited about that. We're going to be adding more to the entertainment. And this year, we've uh, our Fire Chaser Express is our new roller coaster ride. You should ride it before you go home. All right, I'll ride yeah. it with you. I don't ride the rides. It's sort of like flying. I'm afraid I'll lose my hair. You mean to tell me you're going to have a roller coaster, but you're not going to ride it. I never ride the rides. I don't, but I might with you. We could, I guess. You've been a remarkably uh, successful businesswoman. How has that happened? Well, my dad was like that. My dad raised 12 children. My daddy could not read nor write. Never had a chance to go to school. But my daddy was so smart. You know, he was just, I've just always wondered what all my daddy might have been able to do had he had an education. But I, my daddy, I watched him maneuver. I watched how he would, he could trade and barter and, you know, it's like he would, well, they call it good horse sense or horse trading. They call it street smarts if you're from the city, but good old country horse sense. My daddy was so smart, and I just watched him through the years. And my daddy was also one of those people that was really willing to work. He was up all the time, up early, having to farm before he went to work on construction or doing whatever he had to do to, to keep food on the table. But he always just managed to make some of the best deals and some of the best choices and I I was very influenced by that now I got my music from my mother's side of the family and most musical people musicians don't want to work at anything else so I got my work ethic from my dad I got my music from my mama and I tried in the early days when when uh, when I would think about it and I started seeing that I could make money at this I thought well they do call this the music business so why don't I kind of lay a little heavy on the business side of things? So I got to thinking, you know, uh, what I should do to make it really profitable, not just to sing and just let the money roll in and let it be gone before you think about it. So I started thinking about uh, keeping my publishing to myself, you know, publishing my own songs, starting my own publishing company, and just different things like that that I thought would be, you know, smart business. So through the years... I have been lucky 
and made some really good choices, but I've got a lot of good people that's helped me a lot too. I owe a lot of my success to a lot of smart people. But I'm thinking of, of a young, say, an 18-year-old Dolly Parton in Nashville, trying to make it, talented. Uh, in, in that period, there weren't many opportunities for women. Bluntly put, how did you keep the men off of you <laughs> and keep your, your mind and their mind on business and therefore build a business, which is now tens of millions of dollars a year business? When I was young, you got to remember, I first of all believed in my talent. I really believed that I was heading to Nashville with something to sell. I thought my songs were good and I thought I was, you know, a good enough singer that I could pull that off. And I had all these brothers, so I knew men. I had my dad, my uncles that I loved, and my grandpas. So I knew how men thought. I knew them all so well. And I always said I kind of, I look like a woman, but I can also think like a man. So I was not intimidated. And I was a right pretty girl, you know, for, for the times, you know, a little overdone, of course. But I used that. You know, I was not intimidated. I took it as a compliment when men thought I was, if they thought I was pretty. Uh, I thought, well, this is all good. I can use this to my benefit. But I did not uh, use it for anything other than to know what to do. Uh, I knew that I had something, and I would say things like, look, I think I can make us both a lot of money if you want to, you know, work with me on this. And if sometimes some men did get, you know, a little out of line, a little out of place, but I knew how to manage that without hurting their feelings, to compliment them or not to take it as an insult because it wasn't. But if someone did get out of hand, I would know kind of what to say. So I never slept with anybody to get anywhere. If I slept with somebody, it's because I wanted to not to try to get ahead in the business. So I just, with some people, especially with me being overdone and over-exaggerated with the makeup and the hair and, and the way I dressed, uh, some people might have thought I was dumb, but I would have the deal done and gone before they realized what had happened. So I, would, I just looked at it like a business, and I, I was always proud to be a woman. I never took their flirting as an insult. I thought it was a compliment, but I knew how to handle it. You had the moxie not to mention the good business sense, to, for example, when you wrote um, I Will Always Love You and Elvis Presley was going to record it, <laughs> and suddenly you said, whoa, no, tell me about that. Well, actually, Elvis loved the song. That was when he and Priscilla were having their problems, which I met her recently, and she told me that Elvis loved that song, and he had sung that to her on the day of their divorce. She, he said she he kind of leaned in and sang a little bit of I Will Always Love You. And so she told me how much that he loved that song. This was recently we were doing some business. But during that time, it's no fault of Elvis, you know, he loved the song. But Tom Parker was in defense of Tom Parker, too. Colonel Tom, his manager, you know, he made some wise decisions, evidently. So he knew what he was doing. But that was goes back to that other thing, because Elvis was ready to record it. I told my friends and people that he was recording it, and they were in town to do the recording. They had invited me down to the session. And Colonel Tom Parker calls me the day before and says, now you do know that Elvis is recording your song, and you do know that Elvis don't record anything that he don't publish or at least get half the publishing on. 
I said, really? Which is to say he would have the rights. He would the have the rights, at least half, half of the, the rights to the publishing of the song. I said, I can't do that. This song's already been a hit with me, and this is in my publishing company, and obviously this is going to be one of my most important copyrights, and I can't give you half the publishing. Of course, that's stuff that I'm leaving for my family. And uh, he said, well, then we can't record the song, and I was just heartbroken. I said, well, I'm really sorry. But I can't do that. Well, so I Parton, didn't. That took guts. Well, it didn't to me. It seemed to be the thing to do. I, it hurt me because I was so disappointed that I was going to have to tell my friends Elvis didn't record it. And, but I just knew that that was not right and that that was not... If it had been maybe... If I didn't have my own publishing company, had the song not already been a hit, it might have been different. But I couldn't give somebody half of a song that had already been number one and that was you know, was evident, had already proved itself. Well, so, you had some redemption, Whitney Houston, then well, many yes. years later. <laughs> That's true. When Whitney recorded it, I was like, oh, good, because now I own 100% of the publishing, 100% of the writing, and I did really well with that. But I didn't blame Elvis, and I didn't blame Colonel Tom I either. I, it was a decision I had to make at the time, and I'm glad I did. But when Whitney Houston recorded it, which made it a worldwide hit all over again, not only made you a lot of money, that's true, but also... Uh, as you yourself said, you said, hey, here it comes again. That really was a great song. My question is, Whitney Houston, uh, African-American heritage, you from the mountains of East Tennessee, what went through your mind when it was Whitney Houston who brought the song back and made it again such a sensational bestseller? Well, it was overwhelming. If I should stay the way she did it, David Foster, who arranged and produced it, and Kevin Costner, who's the one that just, you know, wanted to do the song in, in the movie. But when I heard her sing it, because I'd always loved her singing anyway. I mean, what a voice she had. I mean, at that time, nobody could outsing her. But when I heard it, I, my heart just stopped. I just couldn't believe that my little song, my little simple song that was written straight from my heart, you know, about a, a subject... Uh, that we all know and relate to one way or another, whether it's someone that's died or our kids going off to school. People relate to that song in so many ways. But anyway, when I heard her sing it, I could not believe it. I almost, I was driving at that time from my office in Nashville to my house in Brentwood, and I heard it when she started singing that a cappella. I thought, well, you know, it just, I thought, what is, you know, if I should stay? And it, it took a minute to realize. And then when, when it went into the, with the music part where she said, and I, I honestly thought I was going to have a heart attack. It was one of the most overwhelming things. But I will love you. Dolly Parton wrote, I Will Always Love You, in 1973 as a goodbye song to Porter Wagner when she decided to leave his show after co-hosting for seven years. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Dolly Parton. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Dolly Parton. In my 
Dolly Parton has reached superstar status as both a singer and a songwriter. Jolene, 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 Jolene. Some of her biggest recorded hits, like Jolene, have also been recorded and performed by artists ranging from Olivia Newton-John to the White Stripes to Parton's own goddaughter, Miley Cyrus. Jolene is, has been recorded more times than any song I've ever written, believe it or not. Every little, every band, every little garage band, every, you know, people sing it on stage, but it has been recorded so many times you wouldn't believe it, worldwide, in every language. And, uh, of course, 9 to 5 was, you know, a big one, too. Parton's hit song, 9 to 5, comes from the 1980 film of the same name, starring Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Parton not only starred in it, she wrote the music. That took some moxie. Jane Fonda comes to you, says she wants to do this movie, 9 to 5 wants to cast you in the movie, and you say, I'll be glad to if I can write the music. Yeah, that's what I said. Because at that time, I'd never done a movie. I'd had different people try to get me in the movies, and I, I wasn't really... Uh, thinking along those terms, but then when Jane came with this wonderful script and knowing that Jane Fonda, who was so hot at that time, and, uh, and Lily Tomlin was also very hot at that time, I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do it, this would be a good time, because if it's a hit, then I can help take the credit, and if it's a flop, I can just blame them, because <laughs> they're the big stars, and nobody's going to blame me. So it was like one of those things, and I thought, wow, this is, a, you know, this is something I should do. But anyway, when she did come to me, uh, to do it. I said I would do it if I could write the theme song. Working to what a way to make living. You've been telling everybody I'm sleeping with you, huh? And that was just part of my deal. Smart piece of business. Well, it seemed to be the right thing to do. I thought, well, you know, I don't have to do the movies, but I am a songwriter because I've always loved my music more than anything else. I love to write songs and I love to sing them. So I thought, well, you know, I'm not up for being some great actress. I'm no Meryl Streep. But I, if I do things that's kind of true to my personality, something I can do, I will. But it was more about, you know, if I'm going to do this, why not drag my music in there, too? And I was a As Parton dove into acting, she often brought her music along as well. She composed the score for the movie Rhinestone, where she starred alongside Sylvester Stallone. Howdy boys! And two of her songs were included on the soundtrack for The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, where she teamed up with Burt Reynolds. Well, fine, then I'm getting dressed and going home. But Parton's most famous and enduring professional partnership has been a musical one with country music legend Kenny Rogers. They have been singing together for decades and their 1983 hit, Islands in the Stream, top charts all over the world. On her latest album, Blue Smoke, Parton teams up yet again with Rogers for a poignant and intimate duet entitled 
You can't make old friends. I'll be there, just waiting for you. In this new album, Blue Smoke, there is uh, the duet you do with Kenny Rogers. Yes, and I love Kenny, love singing with him. I did not write that song, by the way. That's you can't right. make old friends, don't you love that? It's obvious that you and Kenny Rogers have something very special. We do, I love him to death. He's like a brother to me, or like a twin soul. We just know each other. We can see each other across the room and know what the other's thinking about whatever else is going on in the room, or we can just look at each other and laugh and smile, or when other people say things, we, we know how the other's gonna to react to it. But I just love him. We've never had anything sexual at all, but there is a great romance that we have. It's like a, a sweet, well, I mean, it's like you have, I have a relationship with everybody I've ever worked with, but that's not to say I've had a love affair, because I love people. I love to connect, and I love to really get to know whoever I'm with, and to know what they're about. But Kenny and I, he feels the same way. We just absolutely are perfect together. Well, this general subject brings us to your marriage. As I do my math, and I'm not always good at it, soon you will have been married 50 years. Well, actually, we met 50 years ago this May. We've been married for 48 years. We, we were dated for two years, and then we got married. So that's a long time. He's a good guy, and we have a great understanding of each other. We're great friends. Now, he's a very complex, involved person. I never get tired of him. He's got a, his own sense of humor. He's got his own way of thinking. He's not involved in the music business at all, but he loves music, and we're different, but yet we just are so compatible. Well, you know there are people to this day who do not believe your husband, Carl Dean, actually exists. I know that. They do. They think that I just made him up. Uh, some say I'm having a a relationship with my girlfriend Judy. Uh, we've just had a great friendship. There's never been, well, there's a great love there between with Judy. us, with my friend Judy. But people say, oh, you just have a husband because you're this or you're that, or you've never even, you know, but we have been married. My husband just does not want to be in the spotlight. Years ago, early on when I came to Nashville, I took him to my first award uh, dinner. I had one uh, a, a, an award, BMI award for the song of the year. And my husband went with me, had rented a tuxedo, which I had him do. He was absolutely miserable. And on the way to the car from the <laughs> dinner, he was taking off stuff. <laughs> he said, we got in the car and he said, you know what, I want you to do really well. And I really do. And I, I don't mind what you do, but I ain't never going to more of them damn things. So don't even ask me. So I never have and he never did. Well, you raised this up again. It's been in print, in fact, fairly recently, uh, this suggestion that uh, because Judy, your friend from childhood, travels with you and has over the years, uh, that there's something, quote, special. Have you ever talked to Oprah Winfrey about this? Because the same sorts of things have, have been associated with her. Uh, she has a lifelong childhood Gail, friend. Gail, her friend Gail. Gail. Uh, have you ever talked to Oprah about it? Yes, we have. T when I've worked on her show before, we've talked about that. Because people that don't have like a best, best friend, I mean a really true great friend, you said it right when you said 
something special with Judy because Judy and I have been best friends since we were like in the third grade. We went all through high school together, took all the same classes together, dreamed and talked together. She knew that I was wanting to be a star. She went to the military after we graduated because she's from a very poor family and she needed to do things for insurance and, you know, for some. And I said, well, I'm going on to Nashville and when you get out of the military, I should have some of my stuff going, you know, by then. And so that's exactly what happened. I was just really getting going good. When she got out of the military, she came to Nashville. We picked right up where we left off, and we've worked together ever since. She tours with me all the time. She's like a sister and, and certainly the best friend that anybody could have. And there has never been any kind of a sexual relationship with us. I mean, it's just, there's just a true love. There are all kinds of true loves, and that is certainly one of mine, but it is truly just a great Friendship. Well, Donnie, you know from talking to you before, you never met anybody who had less interest in anybody's private life than I do. The reason for picking up on what you said about this was with you and with Oprah, it seems, you tell me if it seems this way to you, that if you're a successful woman, particularly if you're a successful woman who's in the limelight, that these kinds of rumors, speculations, really sleazy stuff are inevitable. Oh, absolutely. You learn that really early on. People love to gossip. This world is built on greed and gossip. And, of course, people are going to talk. People want to talk. And I don't even mind what they say. You know, it's like you can't really fall under that. People love to say what they love to say. They love to talk about it. And if I can be a point of interest to them, I don't care what they say, as long as they don't hurt my family or somebody else with it. But they're going to say it. doesn't matter if it's a female friend or a male friend. I, Lord, in the minds of people out there, I've screwed everybody that I've ever worked with. But that's not so. Excuse me. I don't want to start a rumor here. <laughs> yeah, with you and me. They'll be saying you and me. Well, Dolly's no, new love. It would love. probably help my reputation at age 82 to get that started, but I'm not sure. What, well, that... you look good. Are you that age? <laughs> Are you really? Well, you look wonderful. Well, thank yeah. you. Just a simple country girl I wanted to be pretty More than anything in the world What is the one thing you think your public doesn't know about you? Lord, I don't know. I've been around so long and uh, people like you have asked me so many things I can't even begin to imagine yeah. what they don't know about me. I really don't. I mean, they probably not realize how I seem to be like such a show girl, such a party girl. They'd probably be surprised at how really ordinary I am in my day-to-day -day life, that I love to just go home, I love to cook, I love to be with my husband, we love to ride around in our little RV. Uh, you know, it's like I don't, I don't party. I look like a party girl, but I just hate it when I even have to go do a lot of stuff where it's just so public. I do it, and I'm fine with it, and I love people, but I'm just really, I just love, I'm just a homebody. I know what I wanted to ask you. True or untrue, you wear your high heels even in the shower. 
<laughs> I know, I don't. But I wear my high heels most of the time. Even my house shoes have a little heel on them because I'm very short, too. And plus, I've worn my heels so long, it's like if I walk around, even when I'm working out and having to wear tennis shoes, my legs get so sore because I'm so used to doing that. But I'm little. I, in order to get to my cabinets or whatever, i got, I got to have my shoes on. But it's not true that I wear them in the shower, nor do I sleep in them unless I just fall across the bed with them on and go to sleep. But no, but I'm, I like my high heel. But I want to get back to the album for a moment, uh, Blue Smoke. Uh, there's also a duet with Willie Nelson. Yes, I love Willie Nelson. He's another one that I've always been very compatible with. He's very hard to sing with, though. He has that weird phrasing, and I have an unusual voice myself. But I told him, I said, I'll tell you, this is one of the hardest jobs i ever had, trying to Why really is that? I don't know music very well. He, he's, he sings right on the note. Is that what it is? I don't know what he does. He's just got his own unusual phrasing, which is why he's so popular. And like I say, I have an unusual kind of phrasing myself, and you'd think that we would be able to, but I had to catch him. I always had to say, where's he going with this? And then to try to sing harmony too. But he actually, the song we have in the CD, I did write it. It's called From Here to the Moon and Back. Uh, and he also has it on his album as well. Same with Kenny. Kenny has the duet on his album, and then I put it on mine. That's our deal we make with our friends. Okay, you can have this Put in your album, I'll put it in mine too. But I love Willie. He's such a great guy. Yeah. When he turned his back on Nashville, I think he was saying Nashville turned his back on him. <laughs> and he moved to Austin. Came. Were you surprised? And did you think, well, that may be the end of him because he, he left Nashville? I didn't think about it in those terms. In fact, Willie and I were one of the first people. We, we arrived in Nashville about the same time. We both write for Combine Music, for Fred Foster. We both went to RCA at the same time. So our, our careers and our lives and our friendship were, you know, really kind of worked hand in hand. And we've talked about that through the years. And uh, by the time he decided to leave, because he wasn't getting the appreciation, I was beginning to, you know, be a star, because I'd started with the Porter Wagner show. And so, but I didn't realize that, that Willie had left, or to think about that he was just gone. I mean, that was his personal life, until he came back. I thought he was one of the greatest writers I'd ever heard, and we used to sit and work together doing things in the early days. But it was only when they came back as the as the outlaws, and of course uh, Waylon and Willie and all those guys that decided just they didn't care. They didn't, they weren't going to go by other people's rules. You mentioned Waylon Jennings. I think he recorded a song with this name. I'm pretty sure he did. But he was fond of saying, "Nashville is hell on the living, but it always speaks well of the dead." True. You're right. It is true. It is true. But anyway, I loved I loved their sound. I loved the fact that they became outlaws. I even loved that whole title. They didn't care. They were just going to do their music their own way. And I completely understood that and got that. My coat of many colors that my mama made for me. Made only from rags, but I wore it so proudly. And although we had no as I could be in my coat of many colors Mama made for me. Dolly, you have this, this program, the Imagination Library. What a great thing to get books in the hands of young children. How and why did that happen? Well, remember I told you a little earlier that my dad 
didn't get a chance to get an education, and so many of my people didn't. But that's the way it was with mountain people, country people. They had big families. They worked hard. They needed each other. And so many people didn't get to go to school because they had to go to the fields and work. They had to feed those that big family. My dad was from a, a huge family. I think there was 14 or 15 of them. And, of course, there was 12 of us. But when my daddy was young, he had to go to work. He had to help. And so it was only because what I was talking about, my dad being so smart and me wondering about that, that I wanted to do something to honor him. And so I started that program just here in my home county of Sevierville, in Sevier County. And so it was what we were doing for children where we give them a book a month from the time they're born until they start school. So Every child in the county? In the county. That's, it started. Then the governor at that time, uh, Governor Phil Bredesen, he got wind of that, and he thought it was a great idea, and we teamed up, and the next thing you know, it's all over Tennessee. Then it starts, it's all over the United States. Then we go into Canada, then we go into, um, you know, to different places. Now we're in Scotland, and we just opened the Imagination Library in, in Australia when we were there. And so now we're in different places all over the world, and we've given over 50 million books away to date. And now that we've hooked up with United Way and the Rotary, we're going to actually put out millions and millions more. So it's, it's a very exciting program, and it's one of the things that I'm proudest of. It all came from a very personal place. I just know how important it is, because if you can't afford to go to school, if you can read, you, there's a book on any subject that you want to read. You can read. If you can read, you can self-educate yourself. And so that was my main, my main point. Dolly, talking about the many facets of your life, we've had a lot of fun here, but again, I'll turn serious for a second. Okay. Who are you? Who is Barbara? Who am I? <laughs> Who is Dolly Parton? Well, I think I've been around long enough for people to pretty much figure that out, but I would I like to think of myself, you know, as a as a giving person, a caring person, a fun-loving person. Uh, I love to work. I love to be happy. Nobody's always happy, but I, I wake up every morning. If, if things are not right, I try to set about trying to make them right. I'm a very spiritual person, so I really think, I know I'm a phony-looking person, but I know I'm, I look artificial, but I'd like to believe that I'm totally real where it really counts because I was not a natural beauty, so of course I'm going to overdo it and try to, you know, create my own little look. And so I'm just, a, I'm just a country girl that wanted to do good, and thank God, and because of God, I have done good, and I'm grateful. And well, I'm not here to that. argue that you're not still a country girl at heart, but I will say, when I look at you, I see two huge assets that took you to the top, put you on top and have kept you there. And those assets, so there's no mistake, and I'm looking you in the eyes, not elsewhere. <laughs> no, no, those two assets are, you are smart, you're really intelligent, and you do have enormous talent. Well, thank you very much. I would like to think I do, but there are lots of people more talented than me, but I, I've always had more, uh, more guts than I've got talent. I've never, I've always just decided that this is what I do, and this is the gifts God gave me, and I'm going to make the most of it. So I just go for it, because who knows why we're really here, and who knows where we're really going. We have hopes that there's something more, but what if there's not? Let's just make the most of what we, what we can right here. 
you've been generous with your time, and as usual, you're generous with yourself, and I really appreciate it. Well, I just loved you to thank death, you. and well, I was excited when I was going to get to talk to you again. I was glad, so thank you. You're thank always you so the best. Much. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.